Welcome back to State House with Frank Santos, Season 2. Today's guest is John Caliandro. Uh, John has uh, been the Senior Advisor and Policy Director for Governor Abbott, and prior to that, he has spent over a decade as Executive Director for the Texas Conservative uh, Coalition Research Institute. And uh, they are a state-based think tank and develop public policy recommendations for conservative lawmakers. I'm responsible for quite a bit of legislation uh, going through the governor's office and, um, and and passing into law. We are going to be discussing uh, a number of issues, but the, and, and we'll do this in two parts. What we wanted to talk about uh, specifically is how misinformation and social media can play a role in developing public policy, and specifically how school choice has become a hot button issue as parents seek alternatives to public education. Stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy the show. John Caliandro, uh, thanks for uh, being here on State House. I was just telling you a little bit ago the whole season two, as we're getting into season two, we uh, really wanted to spend a lot of time talking about, because our, our, our listeners and our viewers um, kind of across, they're, they're sort of across the board. Some are, some are professionals, a lot of them are professionals, but a lot of them are people on the, on the edges, maybe not not quite as uh, in tune with what's going on at the Capitol, but they're active. And so, you know, I think one of the things that I think most people don't realize is how what happens at the session, which we just finished, and everything there that that occurs impacts the, the, the elections going forward in a major way. I think they kind of intuitively know that, but, you know, you've been you know, down in the, down in the dirt with this for a long time and, and know all the ins and outs of, of, uh, this, this political process side of things, the election side of things. So really, I appreciate you being here and, and kind of giving us, you know, your insights. Very um, grateful. Yeah, for having no, me. absolutely. Saying, hopefully this won't be the last time. Cause I think there's a lot to talk about, you know, that, so I, I stopped saying that, that this is the craziest session I've ever been in because I've been doing this since 91. You've been doing it longer than me. And it just, it just was a different kind of crazy. Um, no question. No question. And uh, so I wanted to get your kind of your thoughts on the, you know, how the session rolled out with um, you know, what happened with a lot of the, le- the legislation that ended up, a lot of it died because of what was going on internally. Um between you know between the uh, the big three, and then um, then you had the vetoes, and then you had you know the special session, then you had the Paxton trial. So kind of you know I just wanted to get your thoughts on kind of how that progressed in your eyes, and then we'll talk a little bit maybe about how that is going to impact the elections going forward. I've been reading a couple of articles, uh, some articles on all this going on, and of course there's a lot of everybody's got a theory about what's happening in, inside the Republican Party. And um, I'd love to give you your thoughts on all, all that. Sure. Appreciate it. Thank yeah. you very much. I would actually start in a slightly different place. It's not as quite as political, but I think yeah. it had an impact on session. And that was 
this running concern about uh, ledge council's ability to get drafts out. Right. hundred percent. And it had a huge impact on the process. There were, there were real poor times during the course of session leading up to bill filing deadline yep. where things were much more frantic than they usually are. Yeah. And it led to, I think a lot of uh, bills and major bills that otherwise would have been on a fast track for at least consideration being delayed. That also then led into or bled into these major issues that you've already touched on, mm-hmm. both of which, some of which are, A, <clears throat> going into that session, you never would have thought we would have had an expulsion of a member. Yeah. Right? That's new. Uh, we would have never been thinking about, we would have an, a, at least an impeachment process in the in the Texas House during the regular session. Yeah. And then, as you said, we got into the veto period and there were a host of issues there all of which will lend themselves to the, uh, I think, the political dynamic going into the 2024 primaries. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know how I forgot about that, but I actually had one of those bills that was sitting in Ledge Council for forever. And it came out so late that by the time we got it out of the Senate and it headed over to the House, it was, it was, it was just like the beginning of April. Right. But that's not that's still pretty early in the process. But by that time, all of the other stuff, you know, the expulsion and then kind of the fighting infighting was going on. And it just led to a complete meltdown. Everything just sort of stopped. And I remember April 10th, because that's kind of when everything just sort of ceased to, you know, happen, both on the Senate and the House. Oh, that's right. I mean, it consumed everything. And uh, I had the same experience as you. I mean, I had. Uh, two bills, both in terms of they were substantive, but they were really just two sentence changes to current statute. So from a drafting standpoint, they weren't all that complicated. It one of the bills, uh, one of the senator's office kindly put the draft request in for me in August of 2022. Wow, got the bill back a week before a bill filing deadline. Yeah, so. All of that, I think, made session even more frustrating and combustible because members not only had concerns about their own bills, but then it, once you got into the normal vagaries of session, now complicated by these other issues that nobody could have ever anticipated. Right. The honeymoon's <laughs> over by that point. Right. No question. No, nobody, people are already hating each other and are hating <laughs> on each other, I should say. That's right. I, I miss the days back when I was... Uh, Back in the old days, when we literally, um, when people say cut and paste, now they think of the computer. You you know, you can take things out and all that kind of stuff. But literally, back in the day, you remember, you you cut out the pieces you wanted and paste them onto the the piece, of, and then you'd file that. You know, that was your bill, and it was like, you know, no problem. It's as fast as you wanted to work to get it out there. It was a real guarantee of limited government. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. Lots of mistakes were made. Um, so. You know, so that that did lead to a lot of a lot of delay, and then also, you know, people started getting angry, you know, because none of their bills were moving, and then, you know, all of a sudden, the House isn't going to pass any Senate bills, the Senate isn't going to pass any House bills. It, that does happen every session, right. but later, usually a little bit later, and then um, the impeachment uh, process, you know, just added sort of insult to injury because now you've got, um, you know, now whatever the the groups that sort of sided up on either side of that issue. And I, and I'm talking specifically within 
the Republican Party, um, now they're mad at each other. So you're not only having, you know, cross-party, you know, anger, but now you got inter, you know, internecine uh, warfare. Um, so as time went on and we started to realize we were going to be in a special, and so things just sort of, that was sort of the end of the session. And we started moving on to, you know, phase two, which would be a special session. Um, I have to imagine that there was, um, at that point, you know, a lot of, you know, boxes were being checked by a lot of people getting ready for the election cycle. Cause as you and I know, as soon as the session ends, you start getting, you start getting letters about fundraisers. Um, how did that impact like some of the people you work with and their thinking on how this was going to roll out in the next election as far as, uh, you know, did those, were there specific issues out there that were really important one way or the other to, to how this would lead out uh, going forward? Well, there's no question, but if I may um, take a different turn here and come yeah, back sure. to the, to the sure. main point. There's no it's obvious to everybody that there has been some internecine warfare going on in the Republican Party. We see it dramatically today, but it's actually been on a simmer than getting more toward a boil for quite a few years. Yeah. Uh, you, at least at the Texas level, you saw that with the um, conflict between Speaker Strauss and a lot of members, uh, uh, conservative members. Yeah. And so that goes back to 2009. A while back. It really, it really boiled over in 2011 and continued on. What is that warfare really about? Having led as executive director of the Conservative Coalition, I can certainly map out for you over the course of those years, there was uh, conservative legislation that got thwarted. Was that by the design of the system? or by design of individuals working the system. You could argue both ways, and perhaps it's a combination of both. But what has happened, in in my view as a a conservative Republican, is that we now have this uh, messaging that that has become really manifest in uh, recent years, and really dramatically so now, that notion that the legislature, which has been Republican-controlled since January of 2003, is not getting its work done. Hmm. And I, I find it really remarkable because having been in the legislative process as a caucus director, working for Governor Abbott as a lobbyist, but somebody who's still passionate about conservative issues, I look at that broad period of time and I'm, I'm mystified by the claim I could sit here today as somebody, in a matter of disclosure, I lobby on school choice. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who's a conservative policy uh, individual, yeah, I've, I wish we would have passed school choice in 2003 and 2011. Of course. But when I step back and I look at uh, things in state government, there are precious few conservative priorities that I could say haven't been done. So... Back to the present. Mm-hmm. When I hear this claim made, uh, I it concerns me 
Because as a Republican, you're saying Republicans are failing to pass Republican priorities, but I'm at a loss as to identify, other than school choice, a major conservative priority that hasn't been done. Yeah, that's true. So there's a lot of this consternation within the party that I think is being driven by a uh, almost uh, misperception about what's happened in this legislature, not this, not just this past session, but for multiple sessions in the past. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I, I, I almost feel like there are, there's a group and, and, and out there and, and you, as you put it, messaging that things aren't getting done. And then you look at the issues that they want done and it's almost like they're searching for new issues that have never been a priority for Republicans. And now all of a sudden, because those weren't done there, you know, we're not, you know, Republicans aren't getting things done, but I agree with you. I mean, I remember, I remember the changeover very, very well in 2003. And I mean, even that particular session and the session after I, it was an enormous amount of, of priorities that were passed. I mean, just everything under the sun and then since that time, um, you know, you, you, you kind of have the same sort of thing going on in D.C. too. You, you know, you, 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 you see the same kind of conflict, whatever that conflict and whoever's ginning up that conflict between, you know, between these, you know, some sometimes mostly smaller groups. But, you know, of course, in D.C., the smaller groups have more power because of the, the small majority. When people express this frustration about things not getting done and you take the look back and you and you look, take a long view of things, most, most of those things are absolutely done. Now, it's okay for people to find new issues to work on because there's, there's plenty to do. Government doesn't function entirely well at the state level. Things could be better. There could be a whole effort around governmental reform. There are many issues that I'm passionate about as it pertains to that. So it's okay that people look for new issues to do. But the concern here is the... Uh, is the integrity of the claim that things aren't getting done. And part of it, which is, uh, you know, frustrating is this. The system of government we have in Texas is a carbon copy of what we have in the, in, in the federal system. Our constitution is civil, similar in the essential elements as the federal constitution. Mm-hmm. By design, it's intended to kill bills. That's the way it works. So sometimes really great ideas that have broad popular support, and I mean that not just within Republican circles or Democratic circles, they have broad popular support, school choice among them. Yeah, It is, you cannot find an opinion poll today in the state of Texas that doesn't say school choice is popular among African-Americans, among independents, among Hispanics many of whom are Democratic voters, and certainly so are among Republican voters. It hasn't been done. Is that because there's a lack of will, a lack of interest, or is that the system? It's a it's an interesting question, but I think we're on the cusp of finally getting that done. But I think people uh, get so frustrated that when the thing that they're most passionate about isn't done immediately yeah. is a lack of understanding that we have a system that's de- designed to thwart passage of bills. Yeah, yeah. The the um, 
if you've ever, if you've worked in this industry, and I know a lot of our, our, our listeners and, and viewers haven't actually worked in the industry, but are very active, you know, I don't, and, and I talk to them a lot and, um, and, and they, they're frustrated kind of exactly what you're talking about because they see the, the articles and the tweets and everything else that come out. It makes it sound like nothing, nobody's working. And, um, it's not true. I mean, yeah, it, it's not, it's, it's, um, yeah, it could work better. And are there things about it that, uh, that are frustrating? Uh, but yes, but the, the fact of the matter is it's the system, the way it works. So you have, you know, interested parties, some are funded, some are not funded, some are very well funded, and they're going to influence, you know, those things that happen at the session and they may be able to be successful. They are, they are highly successful. I mean, that's kind of part of the, the issue. Well, the way I look at it is this, uh, it's easy enough to get perspective on it by, by looking at two things. The governor has a signing veto period. How many bills is he signing that he goes out of his way to trumpet as successes? Yeah. Happens every session. Greg Abbott has been a phenomenally successful governor, as was Rick Perry. Yeah. All of, all by working with the Republican majorities we have. Lieutenant Governor Patrick, every session he lines up his top priority bills. This session he had a priority bill for, and he handed it to every senator, regardless of party. He had a party bill. Most of those priorities are done. Most of which were core, bedrock, conservative policy priorities. And they're done. So the way I look at it is it's uh, quite unfortunate and wholly necessary to generate this, uh, this frustration among the electorate because things are happening in Texas, particularly if you're looking at it from a conservative Republican standpoint. Do you think that as, as we start getting into the election cycle and I start, start seeing some— uh, you know, a, a few articles out there, it's not quite bubbling up yet. We're kind of early. Um, but there are some articles out there about, you know, Republicans running against Republicans and, you know, someone more conservative, you know, quote, I guess, more conservative um, than the the current sitting member. You know, that seems to be kind of destructive and not very helpful, uh, I found, and I've been kind of in that. I, I was, I was, I was involved in one of those, and it was very, it was very uncomfortable. And I was, uh, I was, I was helping someone who was a friend, but it was a Republican running against a Republican, and it put me in a really, really bad spot. But I didn't, I sort of didn't have a choice. I, I did in this essence, but it was a very close friend, and and so. Um, so I was helping them, but I don't think that was all that helpful and constructive. And I see that kind of coming now, in particular after the you know the Paxton trial in the Senate. All of a sudden, I mean, there's a lot of talk about that, you know, primary and people and all that. What are you hearing? Well, I, the, the, unquestionably, that's true. It's going to happen. I think the thing of concern to me is the content-free attack. So let's just go back one election cycle. In 2022, uh, Representative Stephanie Click from Fort Worth uh, had, I believe, two primary challengers, one of whom uh, described himself, I believe, as a pro-life activist. I'm 100% pro-life. I believe in the sanctity of life. Uh, I hope and I pray that we never have abortions in the United States. 
Have we done all we can to put women in a position where they don't have to have abortions? No, we can't argue that. But has the legislature done virtually all it can do to promote pro-life policies? In my view, yes. Sure seems like it. Perhaps we could do more. Representative Click has supported, if not carried, every pro-life bill that's out there since she's been in the, in the Texas legislature, all the bills that have passed, she's been supportive of. Her name is on those bills. And yet the attack on her was that she wasn't pro-life. It's preposterous. <laughs> and all you have to do is look at the record and you could see where she is. So to step back from that particular instance and to go to your question and comment here, uh, that's what really worries me. It's okay to have a different view on the impeachment because there are there was uh, the House laid out its case, yeah. Senate heard it, they rejected it. Let's just take that at, at this basic premise. That's fine. You can have that debate. But when we get into these primaries, and you start seeing more and more these content-free attacks, these fact-free attacks, that's what's worrisome. And part of that is uh, driven both by social media, because you could say whatever you want to say, right? And, you know, people will stand by and say, well, I, you know, it's freedom of speech. Uh, I think we all have, have responsibility as citizens uh, to at least have some measure of integrity and honesty when you're communicating, whether it's social media or website, whatever it may be. Uh, but, you know, former President Trump has really fed that, and it really is a destructive force in our politics. Um, there are serious debates we can have, even I'll keep going back to school choice and apologize. No, there are various iterations of, of what a school choice policies can look like. State of Florida, state of Arkansas, Oklahoma, they have universal education savings account. Every child is eligible, is eligible. Other states have tuition tax credit scholarships. Other states have the old voucher. You can have that debate. What's better, a voucher, education savings account? Is everybody eligible or only a few kids eligible? Should we only talk deal with the disabled children? You can have that debate. But to then say certain members of the legislature don't care about school choice, it's just preposterous. But that's where we are. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, you know, the whole reason that I started doing this, which was uh, really out of my comfort zone, you know, sort of, you know, I mean, I, I started State House, this podcast, um, and it was really because I've been doing this for so long, and I started to see exactly what you're talking about, where people are making their decisions either as voting or whatever, when they go to the Capitol, what they say about people on social media, all those kind of things were fed by what, what you just mentioned is sort of fact free information that comes across mostly social media. And so, you know, it's, we're early on, this is season two. We're just getting started um, on season two. And, you know, it's really important to me. I feel like that needs to be an education, a better 
more specific education so that people out there learn what really goes on in the legislative process, the election process, all those things and how they how they're married together, you know, how money influences all these things. I mean, the facts are the facts. They're, they're real. It's how we it's how it works. And instead of, um, you know, just taking snippets off of, uh, you know, one of the one of the news programs um, or taking it off of social media and then make your decision that way. And that, that's, that is, you know, critically important to me. Um, I think I've been doing this long enough that I feel like it's, it's kind of my duty now at this, at this, <laughs> at this point in my career to, uh, to, to be a better uh, steward of the information and a, and a better educator mm-hmm. um, to your point about about school uh, uh, school choice, um, I just uh, was talking to someone the other day, and they were making a very passionate plea uh, about uh, uh, being against school choice. We weren't here to talk about school choice; we were talking about other issues, unrelated. But, and I, you, you actually. And I didn't even prompt you, you know, you just, it, it, it was, but it, I, I wanted to kind of explore it with you. You know, they were against school choice for a very specific reason, because they felt like that there, the program as it would be set up, which it, it isn't, right? There is no language. There's nothing yet to be, I mean, it's coming. Um, so we'll know soon enough. Um, you probably the only person out here that probably actually knows what it looks like right now. <laughs> so, but you know, their argument was that not everybody would be included, and particularly, you know, uh, you know, kids with disabilities, like you, you just mentioned that they would be included, but the that a school could deny, um, you know, a kid with disabilities, and so I, I mean, I, I really, I'm interested because I don't know. It's not a, it's not a. Uh, an issue that I've been involved with before. And so um, I'm very interested in it. I've got, I've got two kids that are already out. So thank goodness. I don't, um, you know, there's so many issues on the school issue that I'd love to talk Mm -hmm. about that, that really bother me about what's going on in public schools. But, um, you know, if you know, I mean, of course you won't know exactly because we haven't had the debate yet, but um, is that a real fear on their part or is that just, is that just part of sort of the, you know, someone's stirring it up? It's mostly somebody stirring it up, but it's also partly that most people don't take the time to look at what's happened in other states. Okay. I would say that there are three essential, uh, criticisms. I'd maybe go so far as to say miss, depending on who's, who's putting it out there about school choice. You started, you asked the question, or your your former guest had asked the question about uh, how school choice would affect disabled students. It is true that private schools could legally not accept a student with disabilities. Uh, does that indeed happen? There's a reason why a number of other number of states, when they launched their school choice programs initially, started with special needs students. And it was because they believed that they could be better served in a private setting. And that indeed came true. Okay. Uh, we don't have circumstances where disabled students who are accessing, whether tuition, tax credit, scholarships, uh, education savings accounts, we it is just not this rampant problem that they're eligible 
but have nowhere to go. And I also remind people that you can go back to, my recollections might be wrong on this, but I'll say 2016, 2017. The Houston Chronicle wrote this extensive series on the deficiency of uh, of special needs education in Texas mm-hmm. in our public system. Absolutely. And I believe it was something like a seven or eight part series. It went through how students were being denied services, how those services were underfunded, how they lacked certain access to so forth and so on. So when I hear people level this criticism that school choice may not be helpful to special needs students, I say, by all means, please go look at the record of special needs education in our public system today, and then you could have a more thoughtful uh, point of view on that question. So I would say that the record in our public system isn't so stellar. Number two, because of what's happened in other states, I expect special needs students to be not only warmly welcomed, but well-served in a private setting. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Statehouse. You can find this podcast anywhere you find your podcast today. If you like our program and you want to see more, please subscribe. Like it, share it with others. If you've got a comment, leave us a comment. Anything that makes us better, we appreciate. And we really appreciate, if you like it, to give us a five-star review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.